to the Daikaiju Network podcast, episode 125. I am your co-host, Kent, and with me is your other co-host... Jason, how's it going? (laughs) So, we are here to discuss 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra. Um, It's a movie that... um, in my personal opinion, and with my experience with uh, fandom, either, hey, Brian, how's it going? Um, it, it's been my experience within fandom that this is a movie that is kind of overlooked to some extent. And um, I find that a, a little unfortunate uh, because I think it's a very important movie for a number of reasons. Uh, some of which we will get into our discussion here. Um, but um, with that, Jason, do you have anything you want to cover before we get into a plot overview? As far as anything else out in the... Uh, anything Kaiju-related or anything you want to say about this uh, before we get uh, before we get going? Well, I know, I think you might have heard about this, that uh, Total Film Magazine just recently released a, uh, basically an entire magazine issue covering the upcoming Godzilla King and the Monsters. And there are some new photos. I didn't actually get the physical copy of the issue. It's not out yet, though. I checked here. The the one that's currently out on newsstands as of when I checked, what was it, like Thursday, I think it was, was one with Captain Marvel on it. Okay. But uh, I did see... um, most of the imagery on another YouTube channel, uh, a demon, and he showed some uh, screen caps of the images that were in there for this upcoming issue of Total Film, and they look pretty fantastic. I don't know if you have gotten around to uh, seeing some of these images for the upcoming issue, but uh, there are some with... Uh, Godzilla battling uh, King Ghidorah in uh, in a town. I'm not sure where the final battle is going to be, but I think it's. I, I shouldn't say I think it is part of that uh, final bout. Um, and then they are showing some new uh, photos of the human cast. And then I think, um, other than that, it was just. Uh, stills from almost the same things that we've seen in trailers, but there were at least a few new photos uh, for this upcoming issue of Total Film. Yeah, I've I've seen a couple of the photos in question, but I haven't delved too deeply into it. Part of it is because I'm kind of trying to stay a little bit spoiler-free, even though I've dove in enough and, uh, if, I, if I use the appropriate, um, uh, I, I'm forgetting words here. Um, if I'm using the appropriate term for that word, uh, I haven't dove a whole lot into this movie as far as sort of its story. Um, you haven't looked into anything since the second trailer. Yeah, I agree with you too, Brian. Uh, the unfortunate thing for me personally is where we kind of consider ourselves a little bit of a news podcast. And so, um, well, not, not just news, but like, hobby, so. 
<laughs> well, yeah, but we kind of feel like there's a little bit of an obligation for those who do want to learn a little bit more. We kind of had to dive into some of that stuff. Um, yeah, I think the last trailer I saw, too, was that second trailer. I haven't purposefully gone out and done a whole lot of digging as well. I mean, look, we all know uh, Godzilla wins this thing. We we know that. And it's very likely, too, that neither of the other three kaiju will survive, especially King Ghidorah. Um, but uh, as far as like other details, as far as locations involving the battles and how some of these monsters may potentially get offed, uh, I know nothing of that sort. So, and I don't even know if such information is out there, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it's like, um, I know you guys haven't really seen much since the second trailer. I did see that. Uh, the recent uh, TV spot uh, that's just 30 seconds. I don't think there was really anything new except for maybe one or two new uh, footages, Uh, but I don't think it was uh, Kaiju related. Um, And I think uh, other than that, I know, was it comicbook.com? They were reporting that uh, the Godzilla vs. Khan uh, principal photography was finished, but then I looked in that article and they did an update saying that uh, one of the guys that's working in there or something of the sorts uh, were refuting that uh, claim. So, which is understandable since, I mean, it's more than a year away from that movie being released and i think i would at least say maybe another month or two for them to be finished with it and then they'll start in with the post-production uh stuff have you heard about this possible rumor that there could be a different kaiju in this movie as well like i've seen uh like photos of this i don't know if it's a rock kaiju or kaiju coming out of the ground but i think it's got like a bluish eye or something like that some people are wondering if that's a new kaiju or Um, uh, another toho kaiju that is uh being teased or something i've seen something like that i don't know anything about it yeah there are some rumors about it but then um according from what i saw in a uh video tile from demon uh, 1954 saying that uh, apparently those rumors about possible additional Toho monsters are false and these are going to be uh, new legendary monsters. Uh, for me it would make sense just to show the uh, strength and power uh, for the other uh, Toho monsters Mothra, Rodan and, and- Ghidorah uh, uh, show their strength and abilities against but um, as far as I know so the scenes with that oil rig yes that's that would be one of those monsters like uh, legendary created monsters and as well as the the one that we see in that uh, mountainous range yeah my guess if I had to guess my theory would be yes it is a new kaiju and I would guess it would be a form of a muto like what we saw in the last movie um like 
Have you seen the cover of that uh, prequel comic for yeah. this movie called Gods of Laughter Shock, where it's kind of got that like almost hulked out uh, Mudo of sorts? Yeah, uh, I think I think uh, I forget. Uh, I think someone must have uh, named it like a Keen Mudo or something at one point, or I'm just uh, making that up. Uh, but they were, I think. I was watching a video of uh, talking a little bit of the backstory of the sorts for the upcoming uh, graphic novel for Godzilla Aftershock. And they were just, I think, going in the the little bit of the backstory. Um, but other than, than that, um, yeah, just seeing at least a couple images here and there of that, uh, I would say, the Alpha Mudo. Uh, and that's essentially about it. Yeah, uh, my my biggest concern, though, uh, with these being new kaiju that are being uh, very likely created by legendary. My concern is, are they going to be generic looking monsters? Kind of like what you're bringing up here, Brian, like spider legs and coming from the forest or the mountains. My fear is you're just going to get some generic type of creature. I want something that's like Pacific Rim type, something with a little bit more uh, creativity uh, behind its design, if they're going to do that. Oh, my- I, I wouldn't doubt that they would just, you know, put something together within a minute or so i would with with the way with the good job the way that legendary has done for the godzilla franchise so far i would say that they have some people taking the time of trying to come up with uh creative looking kaiju just for something that I hope you're may right, last for a few minutes time. At the same time, until I either see some leaked photos or until I go see the movie, I'm going to be a little concerned that it's going to be some sort of like just a generic spider kaiju or something like that. Uh, You know, I want to see something uh, that's that's a little bit more original in concept instead of just, oh, look, a giant spider. We haven't seen that 500,000 times already. So, um you know, I just want some originality behind it is is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, Legendary's done really well because I think they, w- they were the ones involved, too, in the Pacific Rim, <clears throat> excuse me, duology. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of things in those two movies have been done really well. And, of course, with the first Godzilla movie, things were done well there, too. And so far, things are looking very good for this film. But, of course, we don't really know much of, uh, of these other kaiju yeah. So, I mean, yes, I got high hopes, but at the same time, from what little I have seen as a result of that, there's a part of me that is a little uh, apprehensive about it. It's like, you know, I'm fine with the current roster as it is for this film. I mean, it's just like, hey, that's awesome. You know, Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, King Ghidorah. I mean, I'm set with that. I mean, sure, yes, having other kaiju is nice, but it's like, if you're going to bring in some new kaiju, you know, whether they're Toho or brand new ones, I want them to be good ones. I mean, other Toho ones would be fine because we know those kaiju. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to do something wholly original, you need to try to, you know, put some effort into it is what yeah. I'm saying. This yeah, isn't the uh, 1950s anymore. Yeah, I would say at least uh, when it comes 
to uh, Godzilla versus Khan, there there have been rumors of potentially of them secretly bringing in a Toho monster. And I've seen a lot of people saying that uh, Destroyer could be like the potential, like uh, best suitable one for that one. That's yeah. fan speculation, though. Uh, as much True, as I would I'm love to take it with the grain, I don't think it would fit in a movie like this. Yeah, but um, if if that were the case, that would be pretty badass. But um, yeah, other other than that, um, as far as additional Toho characters um, beyond uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, here, I would just take it with the grain of salt for right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree, though, with this rumor. And this was something I think we had discussed here on this podcast like a while back where when it came to Godzilla versus Kong, you and I both have said, look, we don't believe there's going to be a clear cut winner in this because, look, you had Aliens versus Predator. You had two of those films and you had like Freddy versus Jason Um, films like that. They usually try to end in some sort of a draw of sorts. And you know, we were like, look, this is going to end in a draw. You know, Godzilla's not going to wholly come out on top or neither is Kong. You know, something's going to happen. And I even sort of speculated maybe there's a kaiju that comes in in which they sort of team up together and try to battle. That's- and then when it's all done, they kind of go their separate ways. And it seems like a lot of other people are thinking the same thing. And so that's kind of yeah, what I'm guessing Kong that's is what there's going to be. That's what I'm thinking too. I mean, with with the way that we've seen in uh, was it Batman v Superman here, uh, right? Get, um, was it Doomsday coming in, which is a more deadlier threat than both of those guys team up along with uh, Wonder Woman, and then it to me when it comes to Godzilla versus Khan, it's like it's it's just not going to be an entire movie of both Godzilla and Khan duking it out throughout the entire film. You'll get I would have to see battles with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would have to say the most log- logical point is that there has to be something that's a much more deadlier threat that will threaten uh, not only them, but for everything else on the planet. Maybe King Ghidorah comes back. He's not fully dead after the battle in this <laughs> one. Or maybe you remember my story years ago where I was talking about uh, Gabra being this dimensional demon and he's oh, bigger God. and stronger. <laughs> maybe it's Gabra, redux. <laughs> or, or Space Godzilla or whatever, whatever comes up. Space Godzilla would be cool, but again, considering how this franchise has been put together, yeah. um, it, it has know. it has to actually fit, and then um, and then other things within, possibly from this film, would have to tie into that. My my guess is going to be this: it's either going to be King Ghidorah because he will be maybe defeated but not to a point to where you can say 100 percent that bailana yeah bailana yeah could be a reasonable one um but yeah i'm thinking maybe king Ghidorah could brian brings up bailana bailana could definitely be a good one i'm just trying to think uh, but otherwise my point is that i think it's going to be another toho kaiju it's i don't think it's going to be anything wholly original because i think to this michael and i keep and I'm probably butchering his last name, uh, 
Doherty. Doherty, I think. Doherty or something. I don't know. Doherty or Doherty. I keep, I'm probably butchering it. Um, My guess is that this is a guy who sort of understands the fan base a little bit. And my guess is that, look, if you create something original, that's not going to get the fans like, oh my God, you know, in the middle of a Kong Godzilla fight. Right. My guess is that they're going to throw in some sort of Toho monster. Like I said, either King Ghidorah somehow like returns, like you was not fully killed or something in this film, uh, or it's something else within the Toho universe, Mechagodzilla or something. Maybe the monarch creates Mechagodzilla or something. Yeah, know, but there, there was another rumor that I've uh, heard that uh, Mechagodzilla could be a potential one along with Destroya. <laughs> I would argue Destroya is more likely than a Mechagodzilla for, again, this type of a series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not opposed to seeing it. I'm just, you know, because look, let's face it, nowadays, um, when you do films like this, uh, you, yes, you need to acknowledge the the core fan base. You have to, because that's sort of how your, your film or your franchise is riding on, because those are people who are going to continue to come to these films, especially if you make a series of them. But at the same time, too, you have to make them digestible for a general audience as well, which I'm okay with. I mean, um, you know, I, I have no problems with how, like, some of the superhero movies have have been produced. I mean, I'm not as much of a Marvel fan, movie fan anymore as I was just because I think those have gotten to be too much, like, you know, comedy skits. But as far as their production value and sort of acknowledging certain story components and leaving certain components out, I'm okay with that because there are some people out there who may know some of these characters either by name only or may know just a passing idea of who they are but they don't know the lore of them and they may not necessarily want to take the time to do that i understand that and my guess is that you know everybody knows godzilla and kong even if you are not a fan of any of these characters you don't care for the movies or whatever you know who they are Mm -hmm. and that i think alone is going to draw everybody whether you're a fan or just someone who in general knows of them that alone is going to drive you into the theater but then like uh, we were saying for this potential ending um it may end up being something where um uh, 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 uh you know you get like another toho kaiju come in especially for the hardcore fans but then again as i say that i'm thinking out loud and i'm going you know yes the hardcore fans like us will be like oh my gosh it's bailane or whoever it may be those who are general fans are going to be like what um so i don't know maybe they may try to do an original creation of some sort but then again you may not end up pleasing everyone i don't know let's see what brian wrote something up here they could possibly write in a destroy subplot with the humans trying to kill the monsters with something like the oxygen destroyer who knows godzilla might die and there could be a baby godzilla and destroy is created from that's well, then, an interesting well then uh, uh was it there, uh, actually well is it uh, michael dotty the director for this upcoming uh godzilla film he has uh, put on his Twitter the Oxygen dest- Destroyer and I think there has been rumors of that being somewhat in play for this uh, upcoming film 
Well, and I want to say this off, you know, right now, too, because of today's day and age with social media and the fact that so many things, you know, even many movie productions that are trying to be as tight lipped as possible. I have seen in the past certain directors or producers or people involved with the project uh, send out on purpose um, conflicting uh, statements or images. My, I'm not willing to rule out that that could be something to distract us. And it is something that's like, hey, look over here. But in the meantime, we're going to do this over here. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, let's say, okay, here's an oxygen destroyer. We're going to get you guys hyped up for destroy it. But in reality, we're going to do over here, let's say, uh, I don't know, Space Godzilla or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's. I would just say just keep an open mind at least. I would, like you said, just don't rule anything out completely just yet. But that's just no, something I'm, to at least think of. I'm not. It's just that I'm a little bit reluctant to accept anything until I see either definitive proof in the form of leaked photos or when I go see the films themselves, because, you know, I've been around the block long enough to where I kind of know the tricks of the trade as far as either, you know, sometimes they hint at something and it actually comes into fruition or they send out something else and it's something totally different. And that thing they initially sent out was meant to distract you. So I'm kind of, I'm like, okay, like you, you can't get, you can't get too over. And I'm not saying I'm ruling it out, but it's just that I'm one of those, again, I'm saying I'm going to wait until I see something, um, definitive that is and before i really acknowledge it i mean we could sit here and speculate all day what it could be or if they're going to go that route or what have you um the thing is is that until either something gets leaked or until other information comes out or whatever i'm just saying we need to be a little bit careful and understand that this could be a diversion uh for for something else so oh yeah i know but uh yeah just putting it out there. Yeah, that's fine. I'm I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I've been around enough that I kind of am like, I'm not willing to buy into that yet until I, well, you know, for me, I'm just, I'm just, as of right now, I'm just cautiously, you know, optimistic or I would say skeptical. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with whatever they do because I like what they've done overall with, well, I mean, there's only the one movie so far, but I'm guessing the second movie is going to be really good too. Um, But I really liked what they did with the first one, even though I know Gareth Edwards is no longer uh, a part of, of the franchise anymore, but by and large, it seems like a lot of the same tones and color palettes and designs and, and all that stuff are going into the these final two films here so uh i'm not too keen though on michael doherty's krampus uh because when i heard that he was the director of that i'm like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> i'm like no please but, let this be a i joke. mean with with what we've seen in the trailer so far i'm i'm uh uh, pretty optimistic of what he's done and with the interviews that he's uh, done recently that I've watched of him uh, he seems to know what he's actually doing and following right. along 
with the whole entire franchise. Yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm not excited for this. I mean, basically, from what I've seen and what I've heard from him and very brief snippets of interviews that I've seen of him, uh, it does seem like this guy knows what he's doing, what he's getting himself into. It seems like he either already came in knowing at least something about the the the, the franchise or learned enough about the franchise to be able to go forward and to do this project. Um, I mean, yeah, I have confidence in him, at, but at the same time, though, too, I mean, it's just kind of like this guy did do Krampus is what I'm saying. But yeah, oh, yeah. I get from what I've seen, I, mean, I like what I see. I mean, I was that way, too, at first when I heard about the name and I searched him up and he, uh, when I saw that, I was like, uh, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see until I've seen actual photos and video footage of what the uh, upcoming movie is going to look like. Yeah. And like I said, I like what I see so far. I really do. It very much is in line with what we saw in 2014. And at the same time, it ups the stakes, which is what sequels should do. So, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So I think with that, we're ready to dive into Godzilla versus Mothra. I think so too. All right. So here's a plot overview of the film. A giant meteor crashes into the Ogasawara Trench, awakening Godzilla from his slumber. Takuya Fujito is imprisoned for stealing artifacts, but reluctantly accepts a mission with his ex-wife Masako and Marotomo secretary Ando to Infant Island in exchange for his release. They discover a large egg. They're told by the Cosmos' two tiny twin fairies on the island that the egg belongs to Mothra and that there was a black Mothra called Batra at one point. Marotomo, the company, well, actually, and the individual too, is being protested by the Japanese for their destruction of large swaths of forests. Ando arranges for Mothra's egg to be transported to Japan for Marotomo in the hopes of using it for publicity purposes. Godzilla attacks the vessel and Mothra hatches. They do battle until Batra joins the fight. Godzilla and Batra battle until an underwater volcano opens and engulfs them. Ando steals the cosmos and Masako and Tetsuya come together to retrieve them. However, once Tetsuya has possession of the cosmos, he attempts to sell them to a shady buyer for $1 million. The deal falls through and after confronting his daughter about his stealing, he has a change of heart. Once Godzilla and Batra reappear, Ando has a change of heart, realizing the boss's company is destroying the environment. He tells his boss to shove it. Mothra attacks Tokyo in the hopes of retrieving the cosmos. She creates a cocoon around the diet building and emerges as an adult Mothra. She flies off to confront Godzilla and Yokohama. Batra transforms into an adult Batra and chases after Mothra and Yokohama, where the two do battle. Mothra is nearly beaten until Godzilla shows up. The two moth creatures team up and battle Godzilla. Godzilla mortally wounds Batra's Batra, and Mothra carry Godzilla out to sea. Mothra drops both of them and creates a Mothra insignia over the spot to memorialize Batra. Since Batra is dead, there isn't any kaiju around to stop a devastating meteorite from crashing into the Earth in 1999. Mothra takes it upon herself to take Batra's place and heads out into space with the cosmos. And the movie comes to a close. So, um... It must be said, I think, right off the top of the bat, uh, right off the top of this discussion, and and I'm doing this to sort of help uh, solidify some of the uh, comments 
and my final thoughts that I will make as we go through the discussion of this film is that this was the most successful Heisei movie uh, due to including Mothra and incorporating more of a female presence in the film. Uh, so it made the most money, sold the most tickets. So I'm getting that right off the bat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anybody listening or watching this kind of knows maybe where I'm going with this. Um, which is kind of interesting considering that, at least in Japan, this was the most uh, 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 popular of the Heisei films. It, it's sort of glossed over here in the States, and I can sort of understand for certain reasons. By the way, Brian, uh, I kind of want to know what your thoughts are uh, about the, the film. Um also, uh, this is an important film because the director involved with this movie is one of my all-time favorite Godzilla directors. And I think, uh, in my opinion as well, one of the more important directors as well. And also, again, here in the West, it seems like we don't really talk about this guy a whole lot. To my knowledge, I don't think he's ever been invited to a G-Fest either. Yeah, and- that, that name doesn't sound familiar as far uh as far as i know uh, yeah and the director taco is taco akawara he directed obviously this film the next film godzilla versus my godzilla 2 godzilla versus destroya and godzilla 2000 all okay. four movies uh, are, I think, some of the better uh, produced contemporary films. I'm not necessarily saying they're the best, but they're some of the stronger entries within not just their respective eras, like the Heisei era and the Millennium era. But I think, too, there's some of the stronger films within the franchise as a whole. And uh, and, as well. uh, and then after us coming out from the uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, uh, film review from the previous uh, DKM podcast episode. Uh, comparing this one to uh, that film, it's certainly uh, light versus day. Where as when it comes to this film, it seems to have um, aged pretty damn well. Whereas uh, Godzilla vs King Ghidorah really hasn't quite aged uh, too well. And whereas that one is a little bit more grayish, whereas this one is, has so much color to it. And um, yeah. You seem to do this about nine times out of 10 when we do these movie discussions where you bring up a point that I want to make, but you bring it up earlier than I want to discuss it. Um, so since you already brought it up, we might as well just dive into it a little bit. But at the same time, I think we have to dive into some of the more specifics as well. Right. Um, but I will just say this in general. Uh, yes, I totally agree with you. I do think uh, out of the sort of hodgy-podgy mess that was Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, and, and again, like we said in that podcast, don't get me wrong, um, I, I think there are things that were done really well in that movie, especially with the kaiju stuff. I mm-hmm. thought that was a real strong point, but that was really about the only thing that I thought by and large was done relatively well otherwise everything else i thought was a huge and absolute mess and i've considered it to be um from an objective standpoint really one of the worst godzilla films in the franchise because it is such a mess uh with its story and with some of its acting and some of the dialogue i mean there are just a lot of things that that movie 
just it's a mess more or less in, in my view and yes coming into this movie um it, it, and, and you, when you watch this movie as a whole, and when the credits roll, you really do see um, a, a different. T- you do see a different film, and not only is that because obviously there's a different director at the helm, but you have a director who is competent mm-hmm. um, as well. And I like to believe, and really, there every director has their own trademark as far as how they approach story, how they approach, um, you know, fleshing out the characters, how they, in, in this case too, how they approach the Kaiju and, and, and their appearance and, and the action that they, um, that they partake in. Uh, Taco Akawara is no different uh, in that. And when you go through all four of his films, you do see some of the better fleshed out characters uh, within the Heisei and the Millennium Era. And even, I would argue, throughout the entire franchise as well. Are they the greatest characters ever written on screen? No, absolutely not. But compared to what we've seen before uh, with other directors and other Godzilla movies, this is really head and shoulders above. And I will even argue, too, that most of his characters in his four films, I think, are better written than even a number of Ashiro Honda's characters Mm -hmm. uh, in his, not just his Godzilla movies, but also um, uh, his kaiju films in general, or just even general science fiction films, at least those that I've seen um, thus far. Um, So we'll kind of get into a little bit more of the specifics here, uh, but also... This movie makes it very clear that we're going to do sort of a Godzilla versus Hedora. Actually, Brian wrote something here. I just about forgot here. Yeah, he says. Oh, uh, he says before I rewatched it, uh, I would have just disagreed with you saying it's one of the lesser. But I rewatched it, and honestly, I have to say it's one of my uh, favorites of the Heisei. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> now I've got now I've got more ammo behind behind what I'm going to say throughout the rest of this discussion. I've got at least one other person that well, two, both of you really more or less agree with me on this. Um, but um, yeah, it, it really is. It, it's a better film than I think most fans, at least here in the states, give it credit for. It just seems like um, a lot of people kind of gloss over this film, at least from my personal experience. But getting back to the point I was about to make, um, it's it's very apparent that this movie is about um, about the protection of the Earth, and. You know, this movie is by no means perfect. And, uh, you know, I will get into more of that as we go into the discussion here. As much as I'm already tooting the horn of this film, uh, it's not perfect. And one of the things about this movie that I think is sort of a mild letdown is that this whole environmentalism aspect of it, which I think is a good theme, it mainly is a throwaway line. They don't really expand upon it. They don't really try to do more. Right. They basically do lip service. To it, they basically Marotomo is basically the stand-in for this because his company is destroying large areas of forests, and sort of as a result, granted, it's more the result of the meteor crashing than anything else. But sort of uh, the the reason why Mothra and Patra are coming back is sort of due to this environmental collapse, so to speak. Um, around the earth but again like i said it has more to do with the meteorite than anything else to me and to me when it comes to that sort of issue it just seems more or less of just 
maybe coincidences as far as these uh, natural occurrences. I mean, it it doesn't re- to me. It doesn't really. I don't really think it has to do a whole lot of that. It's just more like natural stuff that comes in. I mean, it's not like the earth is going to be the same as it is for many years to come. It, it, it always changes naturally. So it, to me, it's just more or less of an occurrence, sort of speak. Well, in the film, it has more to do with the meteor and sort of disturbing everything. Um, this film, I do like the message of environmentalism because I do think that is important. Um, but the thing between when you compare this movie to Godzilla versus Hedorah, Godzilla versus Hedorah also hit you over the head with it, but they did it in a way that was always sort of a continuous part of the film it was always there Mm -hmm. but this movie not so much because none of the kaiju for example are like giant masses of pollution or the story isn't surrounding a particular uh, plot element within the story that is always making the environment sort of one of the front and center pieces yeah you're in you're just basically just uh uh, kind of stealing my thunder in a way where I was just thinking about that. Whereas when it comes to Godzilla versus Hedorah, uh, the environment uh, story aspect uh, ties in pretty well. Kaiju that Godzilla is facing because that's uh, that monster is tied into what's going on throughout the entire film. Right, and they still could have done it. I mean, with the three kaiju they do have in this film, they still could have incorporated that into this film. You would have to be a little bit more creative in doing it because you don't have like a smog monster for for this film to sort of ride your pony on. But you could do it. It just would take a little bit more creativity to do it. But the thing is, is that it's just a passing line every once in a while. And or to me, it's not done very well, that part of the film. Or to me, it's it's more like some of the story aspects from uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah where they just uh, throw some stuff in there and you never really hear anything much about it again or it's just completely ignored. It's, to me, uh, that's uh, sort of thinking uh, was transported for this movie for that whole um i would say minor subplot to that film yeah and also i think here and this is akawara's first godzilla film and as we've seen with most directors not all but most directors when they come into the godzilla franchise um not again not always i want to stress that very much because there are definitely exceptions but usually the first film is kind of a, a bit rocky and then once they get going and do subsequent films they they find their footing they definitely clean things up better and akawara is no different as you definitely see even with the next movie mechagodzilla 2 um which I think is one of the strongest entries in the entire franchise. I mean, some of the mistakes he made here are no longer present. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or or they may be present, but they are done to a significantly lesser extent right. in Mechagodzilla 2. And even kind of like, okay, let me dive into this aspect of this particular film and how it compares with some of his subsequent films. This is a film that definitely has comedic moments in it. Oh, yeah, especially with, uh, what was it, uh, Akeji Kobayashi. He's he's the only comedic piece in this film, whereas he was more serious in the previous film. But then in this film, he was treated as more comedic. Well, yeah, I think some of that has to do with the dubbing. But uh, our, our even our main characters get involved with comedic aspects. And there's nothing wrong with oh, yeah. that. Too, it's just yeah. a, it's just a matter of how do you treat the comedy and how how frequently do you do it. So one of the things I want to say is that it seems like the first half of this movie is a little bit more comedic. Mm. And then as you get into the second half of the film, it takes a more serious tone Yeah, uh, throughout the rest of the film. But the comedy in this film, it's not necessarily terrible. There are times in which I do chuckle at it. Um, but there are times too throughout the movie where the film is unintentionally funny. There are certain things that either happen or things that are said or things that are done um, that make the movie unintentionally funny. Things that maybe we're not supposed to laugh at, but we kind of do. Mm-hmm. Um, would, those are the moments we're laughing at the movie instead of with the movie. And, and like you said, uh, some of it would have to be due to some of the dubbing of the characters, like uh, Akiji Kobayashi. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of the the dubbing is kind of laughable in this movie in certain spots, and maybe part of that has to do. And I've never watched this movie with um, with the Japanese audio, so I have no clue as to how these actors really sound in given situations. I, I was I was originally thinking about doing that this morning for. Uh, the film, but I ended up not doing it. But maybe one of these days I'll think about watching it in the original language. Yeah, I've been meaning to do that too. I watched a number of these films in their original language, but I think I've watched, I know I've watched, as far as the Heisei series goes, I've watched 85 or 84 uh, with Japanese audio. And I can't remember. I think I've seen Biolani too. Otherwise, I think those are the only Heisei movies I've seen in their original Japanese audio. Um, but, you know, some of the things that are funny in this movie, take the opening sequence, for example. Uh, Tetsuya is, my guess is in like Thailand, perhaps, trying to steal an artifact. And then as the temple is collapsing, it's very obvious that a number of the, the the bricks and rock collapsing on him even oh, yeah. and around him are foam. It's very obvious. So some of that stuff is unintentionally funny. Um, there are certain things. Let's see. What was another unintentionally funny uh, thing? Like I think some of the uh, banter back and forth between him and Masako as far as them uh, talking about their previous marriage and then bickering at each other. Some of that I think is unintentionally funny and maybe some of that has to do with the dubbing Mm -hmm. uh, in certain cases. Um, Also the river scene where they, the bridge collapses and they got to jump into the river. Uh, I always found that funny because of the fact that 
they make it seem like they're going to fall into a raging river when first of all that river is about as calm as you can get second of all it's very obvious that it's a swimming pool oh yeah and no thirdly, doubt about it when each one of them jumps into that river yeah um they all look up at the camera well that Even and then Ryan thinks and then i i think you I'm might have and then I think you probably mentioned this, but I didn't probably uh, catch it. Is that every time when they jump into that uh, obvious pool scene that you don't see the other two underneath? No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> There's no ripples either. There are no ripples. Yeah. I mean, you could have them out of the frame, but you would think you would see ripples. But I mean, that's an oopsie. Uh, still, yes, that should have been taken care of better. That's something, though, I'm willing to forgive. The thing about that scene that outside of it not being a raging river and them complaining, so, well, at least Masako is quite a bit about it, outside of it not being a raging river, um, the thing that has me most disgusted about that particular scene is when they look up at the camera. Yeah, uh, because and, that's a breaking of the fourth wall moment. And that's sort of, in my opinion, when if a movie doesn't establish that early on, like, OK, this is a movie in which some of the characters are going to be looking at the audience. If they don't establish that that is part of the movie to begin with, which I know this movie isn't supposed to do that. And then you have characters actually looking into the camera. There's just a weird shift it, it just it it sort of takes you out of it for a moment at least yeah and then some of the other uh i would say unintentional um i would say um hilarious moments is with uh kenji ando and maro moto bantering back and forth with one another and uh the the uh the head honcho of marmoto being somewhat uh, one of those uh, childish, com- yeah, childish, uh, comedic type of uh, characters within this film, as we basically have seen him in the last scene in his, uh, I think, office or something. Yeah, like uh, for those in podcast land, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to see this, but he's like, fine with me. I don't care. Like he shuffles his feet. It's very much a temper tantrum. And I don't know, maybe that was. Uh, and, then, and then he goes down on his knees um, after that whole little shuffling with his feet. Yeah, like that part I don't care about. But and I understand in some of these Godzilla movies, you don't want to make the villains too bad because Toho wants these to sort of be um, family films of sorts. So I sort of under like look at the rebirth of mothra trilogy i mean we talk about mm-hmm. um you know how goofy those movies were movies are and that's intentional by design oh yeah and, basically geared more towards kids than adults yeah and i don't know i mean i've never really um found any um i've never really found anything that kind of was stated by an executive at Toho that said, okay, Marotomo is a cartoon villain. Um, I'm going to assume on some level, yes, they wanted him to not be too terrible. Um, 
but yeah, like you can't take him too seriously. And there are pros and cons to that. And and that's and that's another downside to this film is that Marotomo is supposed to be on some level one of the big villains in this film, but at the same time he's never re- we don't spend enough time with him and his evil ways to really get that established enough. Yeah, yeah, they just really didn't give him enough screen uh, screen time for where it's just mainly mo- focus on the three main characters along with uh was it uh Ryuzo Dabashi, which is Kobayashi's character, and as well as I I sort of forgot that uh, Kira Takarada was in this film as uh well oh, as yeah. that I didn't quite <laughs> recognize um was it uh, the last time I saw this movie it was when uh we uh reviewed it uh many years ago. Um but yeah, it's uh, sort of hard to believe that uh, Takarada was in this, but I sort of forgot about it. But uh, yeah, we're basically focused mainly on, uh, what is it, S- six characters at least, along with maybe the the uh, uh, Professor uh, Shigeki. Fukuzawa? Yeah, he um, basically, I think this is his first film within the era, and he ends up coming back. I know he's definitely in Destroya. He's sort of a got a bigger part in that film. And then that um, uh, one gal that was uh, with him, I think she, she was in uh, Biolani, wasn't she? Because she um, was familiar. My guess was either Biolani or King Ghidorah. I I don't two. I don't think I saw her in Ghidorah. It seems like she was more likely in Biolane. Yeah. Well, and getting back to silly stuff, one thing that I think was intentionally made to be silly was when they're on Infant Island, they first hear the cosmos, and Ando looks down at a flower oh, and he points yeah. it. What that flower talked. <laughs> that's that's something that I have to admit. I kind of chuckle at each and every time because it is really goofy and kind of stupid. Um, and then another thing that I have always found silly, and it's not intentionally silly, uh, but it's a problem with the dubbing in this particular scene, where it's right before Godzilla comes out of the volcano, and um, the professor, the professor you just mentioned, uh, is given data, and he and his assistant's like, look at this data, and he immediately goes, oh! Oh no! no. <laughs> oh, the alarm clock. Yeah, yeah. Brian brings up the alarm clock. Yes, that alarm clock thing I thought was always funny. Yeah. Um, and then after they go down the river, you see Ando Masako behind uh, Tetsuya yeah. with her shoes and dump the water out. That's sort of a groaner to me, but oh, again, I'm like, okay, it's a family film. You're gonna see stuff like that, but <coughs> or like. Uh... Takuya was saying about Masako that uh, he was married to a stubborn woman and then she was just yeah, coughing or kind of choking up and then uh, that other guy's laughing. Yeah, a Kiji <coughs> character was just like chuckling and stuff. I like that too because it's <laughs> almost as like the boys club just started or something like yeah. that. Right <laughs> expecting them to fist bump each other or something like that. Um, there was a uh, similar to um, 
it was after they fall uh, down the bridge and go into the river, and it's during the nighttime. And uh, Masako gives Tetsuya a letter from his daughter, and she's talking about like, "I hope you catch a lot of bad guys, Daddy." And it's I find it funny because it seems like Tetsuya is offended, where he's like, "What she think I'm some sort of police officer or something?" <laughs> like yeah. I always, it's like he's just kind of like it's almost like he's kind of seeing his daughter's stupid or something like that. Like or, the way it's delivered is, or like another unintended, uh, comedy, uh, I would say scene is when, uh, Takuya, uh, escapes from that, uh, temple. And then you get all these guns in front of him. He has that weird expression, like trying to gasp for air. He's like, <laughs> Yeah, his eyes almost look like they're crossed and stuff. Yeah, it's just... I remember that was one of the things you and I always laughed at. Like, when we first saw this movie, like, over 20 years ago, we were just kind of like, oh, okay, it's going to be one of those movies. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, this movie is filled with scenes that I think, yeah, definitely are funny, but then there are scenes in which aren't supposed to be funny but are, and those are the moments you're laughing at the film. Kind of unfortunate, but that kind of happens with, um, you know, a film like this. Um, right. Batra, the inclusion of Batra, brand new kaiju, um, very much a fan favorite. I love the design of this guy. And it's unfortunate, though, that his adult form, except in a couple of shots, uh, is very stiff. But his larval stage uh just really badass. I mean, even in his larval stage, he's about as tall as Godzilla. Um, yeah, and, and he's got all that say, bulk and that mean horn. And I would say about three times as large as uh, the Mothra larvae. Every time they f- have that first fight and Batra comes in and lifts Mothra out, I'm like, Batra was in perfect position to jab her. Like, he could have yeah. finished that whole thing right then and, then and there. And then I noticed in uh, a couple more scenes where we just see the Mothra larvae just sort of looked like it was just dead in the water there next to that uh, little transporter. <laughs> The prop may have been dead. Maybe the electronics got soaked or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just noticed that while watching the film. It's like, looks like Mothra's dead there. <laughs> she got knocked out. She got thrown high into the air. I mean, when you hit the water like that, I mean, if you've ever like landed on your back or done a belly flop in the pool, I mean, that can kind of take the wind out of you for a moment. Oh, yeah. Um, and then Godzilla's look, of course, by and large, continues from what we first saw in Godzilla versus Bailane. But with each film, he's going to get some tweaks to it. I have to say that this is, in my opinion, one of the the, the best times that this Heisei Godzilla has ever looked. I really like how they finally mess with the eyes more to give it more uh, color, uh, distinct coloring. I think to the close-ups of Godzilla in this movie. We definitely get a lot more close-ups in this movie yeah. uh, than in the previous couple of films. And I think they're executed wonderfully. The the the, me- the, the mechanical he- head Godzilla. Yeah, the animatronic one, I think, is a more improved one from what they use in both Bailani and King Ghidorah films. Uh, the head of... 
the soup version of Godzilla, I would say particularly more in the snout area has been improved. Uh, it seems a little leaner in this yeah. film. Mm-hmm. And then I think they added some more dorsal fins uh, on the back there compared to what we've seen in uh, both the Ghidorah and the Biolani film. Yeah, I think the close-ups, though, of Godzilla and Biolani were actually really good. Um, I just thought, though, with Ghidorah, it definitely looked like they were using an animatronic Godzilla. I just thought, for some reason, the close-ups of Godzilla in that movie, more times than not, looked not so great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here, I thought that was an improvement from the last film. Uh but however, when I first uh, saw this film, uh, I was a little bit disappointed that they completely uh, changed the roar for Godzilla to almost close to, um, I would say, the shore one, but more improved version to where the war that we've heard from uh the return of guys all, all the way to uh, King King Ghidorah. I, to me, I was, I remember being a little bit disappointed that they just completely changed Godzilla's roar. That's interesting because when I was a kid, I hated that Godzilla roar that was introduced in 1954. And then it was used again, like you said, in the three movies before this one, when I was a kid growing up, I hated that roar because I thought it, it just, it made him sound dumb. I always thought in my opinion to me. And then of course, as I got older, I'm like, I like both roars. I honestly don't care too much about the roars anymore. The, the roars that throw me off though, are, for example, like Batra in this movie, where he mm-hmm. has the old Rodan roar. Yeah. yeah. Ghidorah had that same one as well. When it comes to the- it's stuff like that that bothers me. That when you really start combining cries and 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 screeches and what have you, instead of trying to do original ones, that's what the, that's what gets me more upset than anything else. For me, when it comes to uh, Godzilla's Howl, uh, the ones that was used in the original uh, Return of Godzilla all the way through Ghidorah, to me, it sounds more badass and it's, and also it feels more realistic. Whereas uh, the ones that was the one that was used from this movie all the way to um, what was it, uh, Godzilla vs. Destroy, and I think they might have tweaked it a little bit uh, for Godzilla 2000 and so on and so forth. Uh, to me, it sounded a little bit cartoonish in a way, didn't, and it also didn't quite fit him as well or sounded not quite as realistic. That's interesting because I always thought both roars, as I got older, of course, I always thought both roars worked really well. Um, I do like this roar. Um, I think I I disagree with you in that I do think it works well, and I think it works well in the subsequent films in this era um, as well. I, I, I don't think one way or the other 
to me, when I hear that roar from like 84 through King Ghidorah, the, the thing that pops into my head anymore, and I don't think about it too much anymore. Um, yeah, I'm with you, Brian. I really don't mind either roar anymore either. Um, but to me, it seems like when they do that roar from 84 to Ghidorah, that they're trying to maybe go for a more horror esque Godzilla, if that makes sense. And that's not necessarily true because take a look at the King Ghidorah film. Oh, but yeah. that's what always comes to my mind is that they're trying to make Godzilla scarier with that by using that roar. Um, that's just something I don't know if that's right or wrong. That's just something that always pops into my head. But um, yeah, uh, um, that's what I think sometimes is when I hear that one. Yeah. Um, Mothra attacking Tokyo, I thought was fairly impressive. The model work uh, I thought was pretty good for the most part. It's not terrific in, in, in each scene, but you get a nice set in there. The diet building looks good. Uh, this, the blocks look really good. Um, however, we get another oopsie moment, uh, in this oopsie scene doopsie. where, where um, you get the soldiers walking by the vehicles and there's a scale problem because the soldiers are superimposed into the shot. Mm -hmm. The soldiers look just as big, if not bigger than a lot of those military vehicles that are lined up there taking aim at Mothra. I guess I didn't quite notice, but yeah, as far as the modeling work, um, yeah, uh, there were, there were a lot of good, uh, building models in there uh and then of course there are some that looked a little bit uh plain or generic uh from what we've seen that were used for destruction uh shots in there or when mothra runs over some of the buildings there but uh i would i would say the uh the national diet building looks uh pretty good especially some of uh, the close-up scenes for where they really did awesome details uh to that building and then i think um some of the landmark uh buildings that we've seen in earlier parts of the film like uh the, the goya tv tower uh and the like it, there were a lot of uh, good modelings, except for a couple uh, generic, uh, plain-looking ones. And there, I will say, if you like explosions, I think this movie has more explosions than King Ghidorah, because especially when Godzilla is marching out of the volcano to Yokohama, I mean, there are tons of shots with him making his way to Yokohama, and there's just nothing but explosions trailing him. Oh yeah, uh, and and also the. Uh, uh, speaking of Yokohama, that whole entire uh, landscape there is uh, uh, one of the better mm -hmm. that uh, we get to see uh, in the Heisei uh, uh, era of the films, along with, I would say, uh, uh, both Mechagodzilla 2 and... Um, Space Godzilla, where we see the uh, was it the Fukuyoka Tower? That's uh, mainly focused as uh, one of Space Godzilla's power sources. That one looks 
spectacular. It, lo- it almost looks like the actual building itself. And I forget uh, some of the other landscapes for uh, the Mecha Godzilla 2 where the final battle takes place. I forget the name of the town. I don't think it's Yokohama again. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, all these three movies use pretty damn good uh, building models for their uh, final battles there. Well, really, um, from 84 through Space Godzilla, each film has at least one set piece that mm-hmm. is decent size and relatively well put together. I mean, one of the things I remember saying with the King Ghidorah uh, podcast that that final battle where it's at, it looks impressive. Like, I thought that was some of the best uh, model work in the entire Heisei era. My only problem with that particular piece was that it looked small. Um, While impressive, it looked small. This one looks bigger. They put more stuff in there and what I always thought was strange was that this quick side note, like with Destroya, you know, that was supposed to be the big movie to end all Godzilla movies. Mm-hmm. There were no large set pieces there, like with large skyscrapers or anything like that. You would think in a movie where it's about Godzilla fighting this super evil kaiju in a battle to the death with blood flying all over and the earth in the balance and all that, that you would see large buildings and all that stuff toppling. But no, it looks like it was taking place, I believe, in the Haneda Airport area. Yeah. Take care, Brian. We'll catch you later. Um, but yeah, I always thought that was um, really... Um, yeah, but even then, I really thought, though, too... I guess there was sort of a mildly large set piece um, with... Uh, I guess Destroya and Godzilla Jr. Yeah, I guess it was sort of a large one, but still the fact that Godzilla and Destroya never, and probably a lot of it. Let's face it, probably was because of the large suits that probably had a lot to do with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the Yokohama set, I totally agree with you because you took the words right out of my mouth. I have here in my notes something on that saying that um, I really think that it's some of the best work, not just in the film, but in the Heisei era and that the attention to detail and placement of the buildings and attractions is marvelous. I mean, it's just, um, yeah. But then, um, I'll also have to say that, uh, one of the only downsides to the Yokohama one is that, uh, if you take a look behind Godzilla, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot no, uh, there, but the but they actually covered it with you know uh, making it dark uh, in there and just lighting uh, certain things uh, for that entire scene. It actually is worse in Space Godzilla. I've definitely noticed it a lot more in recent years when I've watched that movie and the final battle, especially when you get closer towards the end of that final battle with that movie, you can easily see ripples in the shades or curtains that they use it becomes very obvious in that uh, film I, that there are not, i'm not something there i haven't noticed that. i'll have to take a closer look when we get, when, yeah uh, when get we get to that film here in a few weeks yeah maybe i guess by the way we got to talk about that one thing on air towards the end of this show 
Um, yeah, because I because I know we got a, after this episode, we got a another commentary, which I think we've already uh, pinpointed of what we wanted to commentate on. We did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Yokohama battle. The thing is, is it's so funny because when you're younger, you don't sometimes tend to notice stuff like this. I mean, you do, but at the same time, you don't like you don't take into account like the craftsmanship of some of these things not to mention like i noticed okay that godzilla versus destroya didn't have a major battle between the two main kaiju characters in like a large skyscraper area that was something that's always bothered me and even to this day to some extent still bothers me um but like at the same time, like the impressiveness, the expansiveness of some of these sets and all the detail and the work that went into crafting these things um, is really um, marvelous. And the fact that, like I said, really from 84 on up to Space Godzilla, you have at the very least one large set piece mm-hmm. um, in each movie it's really nice and yokohama i do like the look of it i don't necessarily like it just because it's big although that's part of it but i like it more because it definitely looks realistic it looks and the way it's lit the way it's filmed the camera work done uh it's shot marvelously not just the set itself like when godzilla first comes in that's the first time you get a really good look at that whole set but as the final battle is taking place the camera work in that entire final battle is spectacular i I just it 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 illustrates kind of like you were saying like the lighting to where they make it look like you forget about what's behind godzilla and you focus more on what's right in front of you the lighting is practically perfect the the focus of the camera on you know what needs to be focused on is great whether it's a close-up shot or more of a, a of a wide landscape shot or whatever um it's all filmed really well. And again, like I said, that's stuff you don't really notice much, if at all, when you're younger. But as you get older and you learn more about how these films are made and you just kind of pay closer attention to this stuff, it, you become really um, uh, you, you become really not just fascinated by that, but impressed by the work done as well. And I'm really impressed by all sorts of things within this final battle at Yokohama. You know, not just the model work, but the size of the set as well. The lighting of it, the camera work. Um, it's just spectacular. I really enjoy uh, how they do this. I'm more impressed by this than I am at the end of King Ghidorah, and I thought that was already a pretty impressive final battle as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, the final battle was uh, pretty good, although there wasn't a whole lot of destruction in there except for the famous big uh, Ferris wheel there at uh, Yokohama, and then maybe you know, and Batra dropped half of that building on Godzilla in the first part. Too. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's uh, essentially it. Whereas the uh, final battles for other films, you would see more destruction. But um, here, yeah. I, I think uh, if I think there's it's pretty well. What's that? I think there was less in King Ghidorah in that final battle. Uh, yeah, because it was it was mainly in just uh, 
like that focused tax- in just in just oh, one small right. area of the uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building there. Yeah, uh, let's rewind just a bit here because there are two other uh, scenes I want to briefly touch upon. Uh, one scene is Mothra's emergence from her cocoon on the Diet Building. Uh, I really think that is the most visually stunning Mothra quote-unquote birth to date. Um, part of that is because I think the combination of the model work, the cinematography, and Ifukube's score really makes for a beautiful moment. And maybe with the exception of... Um, like Rebirth of Mothra 1. It's been a long time since I've seen that film. But um, maybe with the exception of that, I can't think of any other films involving Mothra where her emergence from the cocoon was filmed and created to be such a beautiful moment. I mean, it's a combination of everything I just mentioned uh, because it's brought up as a thing of beauty here whereas in other films it just either sort of happens or it's made to be this big event which isn't necessarily a bad thing but the fact that you got this beautiful creature you know coming out you know it is visually beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's made to be that way in this i love how that part is also filmed in this movie yeah and um i would have to also take a look at the original Mothra were Tower uh, for that original one. And I'm not sure how, um, I forget how they captured that moment when Mothra uh, comes out from the cocoon there. But uh, we can, uh, one of these days, try to compare uh, the two of these and, and maybe the uh, rebirth of Mothra one to see which one could be like better visually My and, and maybe uh, GMK as well. Um, GMK was sort of GMK made it seem like it was supposed to be beautiful, but it came off more as something like a, um, it came off more as a mysterious surprise sort of deal, if that makes sense. My recollection of the original Mothra one was that it was portrayed as a shock, you know, because they thought they killed Mothra in the cocoon with those heat rays. Mm-hmm. And my recollection is that Ifukube's score, or not Ifukube, it wasn't Ifukube who scored that movie. Um, I forget the person's name who did that. Uh, but my recollection was that the score made it sound like it was a shock or like not only did this kaiju survive, but look, it's it's an adult form. It can fly now, you know. Oh, and also, um, was it uh, uh, Godzilla Mothra, Mechagodzilla? That's another one that we had to think about too and as well as it never coming uh, cocoon there though in that movie <sighs> was it i don't no, know totally it forgot. was just the twin mothra larvae that hatched that was only yeah yeah that's right yeah that's right and then um also for this upcoming uh godzilla king and the monsters movie as well yeah i'm just saying to date i think that's the 
most visually stunning Mothra birth out of a cocoon. It's treated as a beautiful moment, uh, more so, whereas other movies, it's not treated as such. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I just think for the first time, really, in the entire franchise, anything involving Mothra coming out of a cocoon, it's beautiful. And despite the fact, though, too, that the props are stiff, the moth, the adult Mothra prop coming out of that cocoon egg, it looks freaking realistic, actually, the way it moves and how the wing kind of gradually unfolds itself. It's done mm-hmm. really well. It's well put together. It's it's something that I think we all need to pay closer attention to because it is masterful. That And there are a couple shots, too, with the adult Batra in that final battle where one of the different props actually makes it look a little bit more realistic in a few shots. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, overall, yes, the main props of Mothra and Batra for this movie are stiff, but they are not as stiff as I remember them to be. It, yeah, they're stiff enough, but not... <sighs> I, I would know. say, uh, as far as the Heisei uh, Mothra prop, uh, to me, I think that one seemed to be just a a little bit more or just a tad bit more flexible compared um, maybe to the Showa and... Um, what? I think so. The Showa one, like from Mothra versus Godzilla, was very articulate. Like the head moved an awful lot. The little legs kicked around an awful lot. It didn't much in Ibera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's the one I was thinking about. Um, I think the Mothra versus Godzilla prop uh, is the best one so far. Mm-hmm. That, along with Tokyo SOS, I think those two are the better adult Mothra props. I do like this Mothra prop, though, for its coloring. I think its coloring is fantastic. I like the bright, vibrant colors on this one. Yeah. Um, to me, it seems a little bit too bright for a particular moth in a way it seems um not quite as realistic but i i mean uh, it's it's a nice uh pattern and uh color scheme for uh for this mothra version here but um to me i would say at least the show but in and the uh, uh, Tokyo SOS version were pretty damn good as mm-hmm. far as the uh, look and feel of Mothra. Mm-hmm. And another scene I want to touch upon is Godzilla's attack on the self-defense force after he reemerges from the volcano. Um, I find that a lot of fun. You get this wonderful fight between Godzilla and the self-defense force. And I think it's a lot better than the fight we get between Godzilla and the self-defense force in Mechagodzilla 2. Um, But I really like that fight because it's not only done really well in terms of execution i like the fact because you get these maser jet fighters and did you you notice that they actually you can actually hear a little bit of the tie fighter uh, fighter. sound effects (laughs) 
<laughs> with yeah. the Mazer jets. Yeah, I could hear that in a couple of of uh, shots. Yeah, but I had a I had a little chuckle once once I heard things that again. I mean, those things are so cool. Why can't you? Why didn't they bring them back? Those things are so friggin' cool. They're know, flying I they, laser cannons. I guess they must have uh, just forgot. <laughs> yeah, That'd be the only I, logical reason. But I like that fight. It's one of the best staged battles between Godzilla and the Self Defense Force, and I'm and I mean that. I'm not trying to exaggerate that. It is one of the better filmed battles between Godzilla and the Self Defense Force I've ever seen. Because yeah, it's a little short, but it doesn't need to be long anyway. Because of course Godzilla just blasts them, and that's it. But most of the other battles you get between Godzilla and the self-defense force are just many times they're executed poorly. Either uh, just part of it sometimes is the, how the vehicles themselves move. A lot of it though is a combination of the camera work and just how long they film it. Um, I, I really enjoyed that because most of the time when Godzilla fights the military, I'm usually just rolling my eyes and I'm like, you know, let's just go past that. Mm-hmm. Here, it's filmed at the right length, and it's done really well to where, yeah, they get a few good hits on Godzilla, but yeah, ultimately, he just obliterates them. Um, but it's it's just shot really well, and it's filmed at the right amount of time, too, I think. Or what would you think of the, uh, the self-defense force battling against Batra and Nagoya there. Um that one was that one was relatively good too. I did enjoy that one. I think too that was filmed at the right length. Um they didn't overindulge it like some of the films tend to do. Um they made their point and they quickly moved on from it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time they gave you just enough eye candy to kind of satisfy you for a good little few moments. So uh yeah, I enjoyed that as well. Mm-hmm. I like too, by the way, like when Batra comes in, it's just this plume of dirt that's being shot up into the air as he's making his way underground earlier in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or just like when he goes underground, it's like he he just just uh, like purposely just falls flat on its face there and then just see a bunch of dirt and probably just lord the platform with batro there <laughs> yeah um so getting back to the final battle i will say that you know in keeping up with beam wars um i don't like the fact that um uh mothra shoots beams out of her antennae i i i never cared for that i always thought uh, that was a little out of place for me, I think it gives it a little bit of an advantage uh, to Godzilla, even though it has other abilities where it uh, sprays all that glitter and, uh, like, I think projects a beam that uh, that is scattered around with the glitter and everything. I think that one is a good power uh, for Mothra, but I think uh, more or less it's just... Uh, somewhat given an uh, an evil, uh, not evil, uh, even uh, playing field with Godzilla. Yeah, and I understand. I, I understand with the Heisei era things, um, 
definitely are, are, are done differently. And, um, yeah, I, I can understand that. I just really thought if they wanted to give her a beam, they could have done something perhaps a little bit different. Uh, I just really thought, I don't know. I, I just really thought that, um, having beams come out of her antenna just i don't know i just i wasn't too necessarily uh keen on that aspect mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah um there are a couple of oopsie moments in this final battle uh one is where batra is chasing mothra near the bay bridge and in that initial shot there are cars on the bridge but when the bridge is destroyed seconds later, there are no cars to be seen. And then another one involves Batra. When Batra is bit by Godzilla, it's on Batra's left side. Yeah. Over the sea, the bite is on his right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... I think sometimes people just forget, and I don't think they don't see much of the footage, or they think... Uh, when they watch the footage, they think it's probably on that side when it actually wasn't. Or yeah, they're just hoping people don't notice. <laughs> yeah, or that uh, they were want that uh, certain buy or certain um, aspects of it to be uh, at that location, but they uh, did it in a place that really that they didn't want, but. Uh, I don't think they really had enough time for uh, shooting or as far as the the timetable went for that particular film. But, um, yeah, sometimes they'll probably would have to work around that uh, or some of those uh, certain things or like what you were talking about, the, uh, the Bay Bridge there. They probably didn't pay close enough attention where that there were cars there i don't know if it was like an actual uh footage of real cars going by yeah it was actual footage yeah so they probably didn't think about it when they uh constructed that bridge for the uh for the uh destruction of it but uh yeah i think they uh they probably should have paid close enough attention because they've shot it to begin with and they should have uh maybe had time to add in cars but then that also brings into uh what their budget was and if they had time to actually uh make cars or however they do these uh cars if they buy them from somewhere or they actually make them on their own i'm probably guessing that they make them on their own but uh, it also comes with the time and costs. Right, yeah. I kind of thought, though, too, a smarter way where if they couldn't either afford to build the cars or didn't have time to build them or to buy them or whatever, what they should have done is instead of filming the top part of that model bridge as it was getting destroyed, film it from, like, a bottom bottom angle of sorts. Not, like, directly underneath it, but, like, at a angle to where you see like just a smidge of the road or something like that and a wide shot of like the bridge collapsing mm-hmm. and stuff something like that to where you can hide something like that uh, i thought that that's they could have done that instead just to sort of hide that aspect right um 
Yeah, I do like that final battle, though. It is done really well. I love the fact where after Batra knocks about half that building down on Godzilla, Godzilla emerges and just takes... I always thought that was kind of funny, too, where Godzilla, like, takes Batra and he's trying to, like, wind up. The way Godzilla moves is kind of funny. Like, he's doing some sort of cha-cha, and he's Mm -hmm. kind of like, (laughs) you know, with his (laughs) smaller arms and tosses Batra. Um you're talking about the underwater battle scene, right? No, in Yokohama, when he emerges oh. from the building that Batra dropped on him. Mm. Um, we're going to talk about Ifukube's music now, because this is something we almost forgot to talk about last time. I think it's a step up from the previous film. I think Ifukube's music here... Uh, from top to bottom is better than what we got in King Ghidorah. And yeah. there aren't like uh, wacky tracks like there was with M11 chasing um, what's his face? Uh, seaweed noodle eating man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that kind of music. And I said that in that podcast that I thought part of what made that scene goofy outside of how it was shot was the fact that you have goofy sounding music to it as well, which just adds insult to injury here. We get nothing like that. We get mostly music that is beautiful. Sure. Mothra's theme is heard throughout many times throughout this film, but even then it's just beautiful music all the way through and you get appropriate music. Like even when the bridge collapses and then they jump into the river, even though that scene is kind of goofy, it doesn't come off as extremely goofy because there is no goofy music to accompany that scene. Yeah. I I think it's, it's more uh, back to the more Ifuku Bay score techniques, but a little bit more improved and also it improves much more as we go into the next movie, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, as far as this one, it's so much better than uh, the Ghidorah soundtrack, as you've stated uh, a couple minutes ago, and we don't get any of the goofy tracks uh, in there. It's just... Uh, music that was scored and placed in the right areas of the film. Yeah, and I wonder, because a lot of times composers will work with directors and say, okay, what kind of music do you want in some of these scenes? And a lot of times a director will kind of give general input as to what they want. And again, I've not seen ever any information on this, so I don't know what could have gone on, but I don't know if in Japan, you know, or maybe because Ifukube had been around for a while, maybe he was working more on his own. I don't know. Um but I almost wonder if Taku Akawara had a lot to do with it because his score here is really good. And also, if Fukube's scores to Mechagodzilla 2 and Destroy, I've always said are probably some of his best ever. And I can't help but to think that maybe it's similar. Uh, in Japan like it is here where maybe the director and the maestro collaborate sometimes or the director maybe gives some sort of general idea as far as what kind of music he wants in certain scenes. I don't know. Don't quote me on any of this. Um, But 
I can't help but to think that that could be part of it, that Akawara has at least a little bit of a hand in how the music turned out for these films. Because, like, even take a look at Takayuki Hattori. I really thought his music to Space Godzilla was very subpar. But he's turned out to be a better maestro. Now, I do think a combination, I I think it's a combination of him just gradually getting better naturally, just like with anybody, you stick with something long enough, you gradually get better at it. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. But also, I think, too, his score with Godzilla 2000, I think, is some of the best work he's ever done for a kaiju film. And I know I talked about his anime Godzilla scores here, like, I don't know, a few months back, and I really thought those were spectacular. Um as well and i really can't help but to think that the director even in japan on some level helps with that in terms of telling the composer this is the kind of music i want in this scene and that scene and so on and so forth again i don't know but even then let's say that that doesn't happen in japan Let's say that maybe the director and the composer don't work together on that. We'll just say that for sake of argument. And let's just say that if Ukube came back for King Ghidorah, and that was the first Godzilla movie he'd scored since Terror of Mechagodzilla back in 75. Okay. So you're talking what? Uh, not quite 20. You're talking what? Like 14 years or something like that? Uh-huh. Is 14 or 16 years since he scored a Godzilla movie. Um, I mean, it could be that maybe he was a little rusty. And then with Mothra versus Godzilla, he's like, okay, now I remember how I did this. And so he just gradually kind of got back into the swing of scoring a, a kaiju film. That could be it too. And of course, yeah. it got better with my Godzilla 2 and then definitely with Destroya. Um, again, I don't know how it all actually panned out as far as what reality actually is. But nevertheless, I can't, I'm going to assume Akawara had some say in it. I'm just going to assume it's similar to here in the States where the director will sometimes ask the composer, Hey, can you do this style of music here or something like that? So, uh, yeah, you kind of cut out there for a second. Um, but yeah, it, when it comes to Akawara and Ifuku Bay, it seems like uh, what you're saying is somewhat true because whenever Akawara was a director, uh, it sounded with Ifuku Bay's music, it sounded a little bit different compared to a lot of the other. Uh, music that Ifuku Bay scored in his past, and as well as the film before, and as well as the film beforehand, uh, before this movie, uh, Sands without uh, Fuku Bay and Space Godzilla, mm-hmm. which uh, not sure the reason for that, but we'll get around to that whenever when we get to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it sounded like. Uh, Akawar had a little bit of a hand to it because uh, it the Fukube music sounded a little bit different compared to a lot of the famous riffs or uh, things that Fukube has done in the past. 
Yeah. And if that is true, that Akawara had a hand in sort of how some of the music was composed, even though, yes, most of the credit still has to be given to Ifukube because he's the one who helped put it all together. But if Akawara kind of helped guided him and pushed him to some extent, then Akawara needs to be celebrated more, I think. Not just because I think he's a fabulous director, first and foremost, but I think because, too, he probably pushed Ifukube to produce some of his best film scores uh, before he decided to call it a career. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something, and I'm going to go on a small bit of a rant here. I don't understand why this guy is not talked about more in fan circles here in the States because he really, like I said before, um, I understand these four movies I'm talking about that he directed aren't perfect, but I think they're some of the strongest entries, not just in the Heisei and in Godzilla 2000's case, the one of the, in my opinion, the best entry in the entire millennium era. Um, he also produced, I think, f- four of the better Godzilla films in the entire franchise. Again, I'm not saying they're like the top four. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's some of the stronger films in the series. And it's just unfortunate that it's not just him, though, too. Everybody who is not Ishiro Honda gets overshadowed by Ishiro Honda. Mm-hmm. And I love Honda, too. Do not get me wrong. I think Honda is terrific and a mastermind, and he sort of helped basically set the formula for kaiju films. Don't get me wrong. I love Honda, and I love a lot of his films, too. But the, the unfortunate side effect to all that is that guys like Akawara, and even Jun Fukuda and some of these other guys who have created good, if not great films, they really don't get recognized as much, if at all, at least here in the States, for their work on those films. And I've always believed Akawar was one of the best directors in the, the entire franchise because he did direct such great films. When I remember when they were talking about Toho reigniting the Godzilla films back in 99 and they mentioned who the director was going to be, Takawakawara, I got excited because I'm like, I know this will be a good Godzilla movie. And in my opinion, it turned out to be a very good Godzilla movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just a shame that this guy is not recognized and celebrated more for his work. Um, you know, in in this franchise, because he not just for directing, but even for pushing Fukube to create some of his best music. Maybe but, maybe he should uh, bring that up uh, at G Fest or something. I stand up and I start pointing fingers <laughs> and, and just uh, wear a T-shirt with uh, uh, Akawara's uh, face on is like. Uh, Please bring Akawara to G Fest <laughs> or, or whatever, or just something to the effect of straight out of Akawara Godzilla film, or or like recognize Akawara. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something like, just... please, like please bring Taka Akawara. <laughs> <laughs> or something like Taco Akawar is my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> something to that effect, too. Yeah, you should. Yeah, Taco Akawar something or other on it. I challenge you to do something like that 
for GFest. You got me actually thinking. I'm like, I'm thinking about maybe doing something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the Aka War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like they, right. it's like they've brought in, oh, uh, was it uh, Tezuka uh, one year, and then Kitagawa, and then I'm not sure if there were any other um like directors or anything yeah, that we uh, who helped co-direct shin oh yeah 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 that's right so we've seen at least uh four directors in the span of what was it uh seven years of us going to g-fest we have i thought we saw two no we saw and i forget the guy's name who did this effects for camera and the director for Shin. Uh, Ano. Ano. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, Ano, um, Higuchi. Higuchi. Yeah. Yeah. And then Kitagawa, he all, he directed a Godzilla movie, right? No, he played Godzilla. Uh, no. He played Godzilla in the most of the No, no, not Kitagawa. Uh, The one that, the the one that, uh, Koichi, uh, the one that, uh, passed away. uh, He was a director of special effects. Okay. He was the effects director for most of them, of the Heisei films. I could have sworn he directed one of them, but, oh, oh, well. No, he didn't. You had me thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, where was I sleeping when these other two directors? Because I'm like, I've only remembered two of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, one last thing I want to bring up uh, is I thought at the very end of the movie, when they talk about the meteor crashing into the earth, um, I thought that was incredibly unnecessary and it doesn't fit into the story of either this movie or any of the following three movies. Um, the one that uh, Batra is supposed to uh, supposed to take out, yeah, because it's not brought up at all in the at, at any the, other movie. The only actual time it was brought up uh, again was for Space Godzilla when we see the fairy Mothra. Well, yeah, but even then, they don't bring up the fact that Mothra is going to go destroy a meteor. They yeah. we just shot of Mothra spreading off, you know, fairy Mothras. Yeah, that was the only other time outside of this film that we only hear uh, more about Mothra taking out the uh, asteroid that was heading to Earth, but then you don't really see Mothra taking it out, just traveling still through space and see uh, fair, like you said, fairy Mothra is coming off from Mothra, and then see. Uh, I think the maybe no, the cosmos weren't in space, guys. I, I think they weren't, but yeah, uh, just n- yeah, they were. They were in the form though of fairy Mothra because remember, at the end, it sounded like a video game. They were saying, Your mission is complete, you save planet Earth. That, Remember that? Maybe. Because um, they came 
to Mickey like it was her mission to save planet Earth, and your mission was a success. You saved planet Earth. Yeah, I think now I'm starting to remember. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this whole meteorite talk um, was just forced. It was unnecessary, and it should have been scrapped, quite frankly. They should have just left it alone. Like, they could have had... Um, they could have either had the ending still at that airport, similar to the ending of the original Mothra, but just been like, well, now that Batra's gone, you know, Mothra will continue to protect the Earth or something like that and flown back off to Infant Island. Or they could have um, had Mothra go back to Yokohama and talk to... Um, you know, to pick up the cosmos uh, from Tetsuya and Masako and their daughter. And they could have said something like, thank you for your help. And, you know, Mothra will continue to uh, protect planet Earth from any threats posed by it or whatever. Uh, and done something even like that. You know, they didn't have to do this whole meteorite thing that doesn't do anything for this film or any other movie in the Heisei series. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite frankly unnecessary because like when you think of how that works out for the movie Godzilla vs. Destroya, the fact that Godzilla's melting down could destroy the Earth. Well, let's say Godzilla did melt down and destroy the Earth. Then Mothra's mission is... Worthless. Worthless. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. So it just... That should have been scrapped. Yeah, even though that they were trying to at least, well, you can say that pretty much the whole entire Heisei series is a sequel uh, built on uh, the return of Godzilla. But uh, yeah, it should have actually have been scrapped to begin with because we never hear it again after this film except for space godzilla but then it's like the only time that we have heard about this whole situation with uh an asteroid heading towards earth was at the very end of this film here and just like the environmental subplot for this film this one it just seemed like it was just put in there and just completely almost forgotten or ignored just like uh Ghidorah with a lot of the sub points or plots that were put in that film and just completely forgotten or ignored I got a better idea and I think it's a fabulous one too and I mean this I really think what they should have done when they made Space Godzilla that meteorite coming to Earth should have been Space Godzilla yeah. Came into contact with Mothra, took out Mothra. And then they could have maybe done the whole Mogura thing too, but that meteorite should have been Space Godzilla. But they didn't know it at the time. That's what they should have done. Yeah, they should have. Yeah, because then it's like someone should have thought about this. It's like, you know what? Since they put in a subplot and this film where Mothra was supposed to go or Batra was supposed to go out and take out this comet that's heading towards Earth, but then Mothra is going, is taking its place since Batra died, of course. And then it's like, 
Why don't we have this comet actually be a monster that's heading towards Earth? But yeah, yeah, it's like it was actually uh, that came out from this black hole. I think where it came uh, where they based the whole space white hole. I think they said black hole or white hole with uh, the Godzilla slash Bylane cells and everything. So it's like it can be built along his entire prophecy or anything. That'd be pretty but cool. But it would have worked because yeah. basically Space Godzilla was born out of like a meteorite or whatever. I, or, or whatever you want to call it. Like a crystal light or something of the something sort. Like that. But still, it was coming to Earth. Mm-hmm. It was coming to Earth and Mothra wasn't there to stop it. So Mothra <laughs> failed. <laughs> Right coming. Well, there's this freaking huge rock with some sort of deadly monster in it. What are you going to do about that? Oh, nothing. <laughs> and that's why I think they didn't really say much again after Space Godzilla. And then, of course, the entire Heisei era comes to a close with uh, Straya. And we never, we never, ever, ever again hear or see anything about Mothra destroying a meteorite. Ever. Nope. <laughs> unnecessary the most unnecessary thing about this film is this meteorite thing and you and i just fixed it we're like hey all they needed to do when they were making space godzilla is be like hey we got this plot thread hanging with mothra why not make this space godzilla be that meteorite coming down then you could have mothra in there for a moment or two getting the crap kicked out of it by space godzilla mothra's out of the picture and then space godzilla continues there you go. Maybe we should just tying in this entire subplot hole and just say it's like this is what it should have been. I expect a paycheck, Toho. <laughs> <laughs> so unless you got something, I'm ready to move into final thoughts. Yeah, I think uh, I think we are ripe for the uh, the final thoughts here for Godzilla vs. Mothra. So who wants to go first? Uh, I guess I'll go first as uh, usual here. And uh, for my final thoughts, uh, I'll still go along with saying, like I mentioned uh, towards the beginning of this episode here, is that the film has aged really well compared to uh, Ghidorah. Um, Even with some of the visual uh, CG effects that they have, uh, place within this film, although with maybe some of the interfaces is really outdated. Um, but the uh, the uh, the human cast for this film is much more enjoyable, uh, entertaining compared to the previous film. Uh, with some, uh, I think, some purposeful and also a lot of. Uh, unintentional, hilarious uh, sequences within this film with the human uh, characters. And uh, the suits for the kaiju, well, Godzilla, as well as the Batra larvae were uh, very spectacular. Uh, And then the props for Mothra and the both Mothra larva and adult 
and as well as the uh, Badger Adult props were really good, even though that uh, they can be a, a little bit stiff. Uh, mainly the Batra adult one. Uh, the battles for this, I think, uh, I, I would have to say up to this point of the film, uh, it was, I would say, the longest kaiju battles when you compare it to, uh, obviously, uh, Godzilla vs. Bailani and uh, King Ghidorah. Uh, where you got not only just one antagonist for Godzilla, but you got an additional monster for Godzilla the face. So we get uh, much more kaiju action out of this film compared to the other two uh, films that we've uh, reviewed. And uh, I would say um, the city models for this one were pretty good. Uh, of course, when it comes to some of the destructions of buildings close up, they seemed to be a little bit more generic and plain and maybe a little bit flat. But when it comes to the building models for uh, the main or the final battle, they were really good uh, comparing them to, I would say, the... Um, uh, the Osaka uh, landscape from Godzilla vs. Bailane and as well as the return of Godzilla. I'm not, I, uh, to me, I would say like the Ghidorah one is still, for me, in my opinion, uh, the weakest one so far. Because to, to me, it seemed like a one of those 3D puzzles in a way. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can uh, you can definitely see why a lot of people called the Heisei era the Beam Wars. Uh, like mainly, you'll just see a bunch of beams being projected out from uh, now. Obviously, not only Godzilla, but from Batra and Mothra, uh, with just beams shooting out from either their eyes or the antennas or when Mothra unleashes the uh, like the glitter from its wings and uh, shocking or paralyzing Godzilla that way um, but yeah I would say a lot more kaiju action at this point in the Heisei era compared to the others uh, I would say much more interactive uh, characters in the film it has aged fairly well compared to uh, Ghidorah. So uh, with that, uh, Godzilla versus Mothra, the 92 Heisei film is a uh, definite buy for me. All right. Here we go. Taco Akawara proves why he's one of the franchise's best directors with his debut film here. Oddly enough, I always find the majority of fans gloss over him when talking about Godzilla directors as he directed four of some of the stronger films in the series. Practically everything about Godzilla vs. Mothra is a significant step up from the previous film, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. The cinematography is good, if not great throughout. The model work is improved. The fights are more entertaining 
entertaining and better choreographed. The characters are written better. Ifukube's score is an improvement, etc. I must say, however, with all of that said, the movie isn't perfect. A couple of effect shots are not done as well as they should have been. The two oopsie moments during the final battle, as I mentioned earlier, should have been addressed as well. The movie is occasionally unintentionally funny, and the adult Mothra and Batra props and most shots are too stiff. While the characters seem a bit goofy and stereotypical, I remember them for being different in a good way. Not only do we learn quite a bit about them throughout the course of the film, which I think is a sign of Akawara's presence on the film and will become a staple throughout his four films, but they are more relatable and make decisions that force the audience to not always root for them. This is a sign of competent writing. When the film is supposed to be funny, I do find myself at least chuckling. The comedic aspect will gradually lessen with each successive Akawara Godzilla film. However, and that is probably for the better. I'm always impressed too by the final battle in Yokohama. Not only is the scene set up beautifully, all the shots are done so we get the most of each moment appropriately. One of the finest touches comes when Godzilla is attempting to force the Ferris wheel on top of Mothra. Instead, Batra comes in and prevents it from collapsing onto her. Godzilla, in response, gives a frustrated growl before continuing his assault. And Mothra's emergence from her cocoon is especially beautiful. Everything about it is set up and staged wonderfully. I can't think of any other Mothra cocoon emergence that was as beautiful. Godzilla vs. Mothra is a film that, over time, I've come to appreciate more and consider it a highly underrated gem within the series. There's a lot more here to like than to dislike, and there is more good than bad. After the mild disaster that was Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, it's great to have a better director at the helm that captures the essence of what not only makes a Godzilla movie good, but entertaining as well. I encourage fans to revisit this movie because I truly believe there is a lot here to enjoy and to appreciate. Even if you may not like the story in the end, the execution of what is done on screen should be something you can at least admire and appreciate. And it is a buy for me. And so with that, let's just give a reminder of folks what's to come. March 23rd, we have our um, Yongari uh, commentary. One of my favorite guilty pleasure kaiju films. Definitely by far not even close to being a great movie, but it's so blasted entertaining. Um, that was my pick for the commentary uh, this month. Also, something that I brought up to Jason earlier this week that I cannot believe I didn't remember until uh, earlier this week is that um, I think quite possibly our final podcast for a little while will be our podcast on Godzilla King of the Monsters, which will come at the very end of May. What, why I say that is because I got my parents coming uh, towards the end of that month, and I think it's going to be tough for me to see that movie anyways, uh, because what's going to happen is that my dad and I were going to be uh, tearing apart and trying to read build our basement uh in the house here so uh, my dad's gonna be coming and helping with that and that's a huge project and it's gonna be taking an awful lot of time so um like i told jason i said i don't think i'm gonna have time to really be able to do any other podcast for up until we do the g fest preview uh episode he'll be up here um 
around that time that we are able to do it. So we should be able to do that like we have each and every year. So um, just wanted to let everyone know that um, after that particular podcast, when we cover King of the Monsters, uh, our next episode won't be until uh, at some point early, very early middle July uh, before G-Fest, where we Again, like we usually do, if you're very familiar with our podcast, we go over the different um, events that are occurring at that year's G-Fest, and we just kind of give our thoughts as far as what to expect. And it's usually a big geek, geeking out for us, um, because we're usually at that point very pumped and excited to be uh, ready to head over to Chicago for G-Fest. So... um, Again, King of the Monsters, that uh, podcast, let's see, comes out Memorial Day. Let me pull up the calendar. Yeah, it comes out on the last day of May, which is the 31st. So it'll be like in the beginning oh, wow. of June. So, yeah, like um, somewhere between June 1st or June 2nd, we'll get our podcast in at that time. Like I said, for me, it's going to be hard to go see that movie anyways, because I'm expecting my folks to come in sometime between the 19th and 26th. Um, so just to be able to try to get to the movies for a couple hours, one evening, and then to find time over that weekend, um, to do a couple hours worth of podcasting, uh, that's going to be tough for me. And then after that, it's like, I'm not going to really have time. So we're basically talking about close to almost a month and a half off, uh, in between podcasts. Um, also we're not quite sure exactly what we're going to do after G fest. I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves now at this point, typically in the past, we've usually taken, you know, it's anywhere between like, two to three to four weeks off after we come back from G-Fest and do our final podcast where we wrap up our thoughts on that year's G-Fest. For me, I would like to just continue out of the gate uh, after we come back, but Jason and I have yet to talk about that, so I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, uh, there are some things I really would like for us to maybe explore uh, as far as uh, certain films, certain commentaries, and uh, just try to maybe be more uh, uh, um, regular in our podcasting. So um, that's something we will just have to be talking about in the coming months and just kind of figure everything out. Like always, we kind of let you guys know ahead, ahead in advance so you know what to expect. And um, maybe we would... Uh, try to get some uh, uh, guests on here. I know there have been a couple of you in the past that have expressed interest on being on the podcast from time to time. Maybe we'll uh, finally start doing that. One of the things that's been even going through my head is that if you're going to G-Fest this year, uh, I may potentially bring a voice recorder and maybe just randomly come up to some of you, or you can even find us and we can maybe just talk to you guys interview you or 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 maybe just uh bring one of our cameras and then we'll just possibly have a sit down chat over at the visibility bar or whichever works best yeah i would like to do something a little bit different this year for g fest if at all possible just um you know do something different um but yeah, I mean, again, that's still far enough away that nothing's set in stone, but 
Again, yeah, it, it would be like uh, you were talking about that. It would be pretty sweet since uh, Takarada is definitely coming back uh, for this GFS where he could uh, come last year because he had a surgery mm-hmm. uh, and the like. It would be pretty sweet to actually uh, get an interview with him along with his uh, handler there that probably would translate or something um, of the sort there uh that would be uh pretty awesome to do if if we uh just think about actually doing it or whichever yeah well and i think too a lot of fans are really interesting too because i you know over the seven g fest we've gone to uh i've overheard some people and i've even talked to some people too sort of their own kaiju stories so to speak as far as how they got in of course like most uh, of us myself included you know a lot of people's love of kaiju stem from an initial love of dinosaurs uh, but at the same time too just other things people are interested in within the within the genre, certain movies that they like and, and things that maybe they particularly focus on when collecting or what have you. I always find that to be, um, very interesting as, as well. So I think something like that would be, um, I think something like that would be very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, and maybe in the next, uh, was this March, April, May, we only have what, maybe a month and a half until, uh, we got to be thinking about King of the Monsters and then wrapping things up for another month and a half until G Fest. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe figure out, maybe we can get one, at least one episode where we can get one person on here perhaps or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But with that being said, thank you so much for listening. We hope to, that you enjoyed this podcast of 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra. We hope that if you weren't a convert already, that you are like, you know what? I think I will take a second look at that movie now. So hopefully we uh, got you to think a little bit differently about about that particular film. Yeah, and uh, make sure to uh, hit the subscribe button down below as well as the notification icon to get uh, the latest updates uh, whenever when we do uh, live streams or put up any other videos here on uh, YouTube, and as well as uh, subscribe to our uh, iTunes and uh, Google Play uh, audio podcast, which is essentially what this is, but more in video form, whereas those obviously audio versions of this. Um, if you don't have time to listen to us uh, live or uh, for whatever reason that you may have, don't have time to watch us on uh, YouTube and as well as uh, like liking us on uh, uh, Facebook uh, and uh, Instagram or uh, on some of the other alternative uh, social media sites such as uh, Minds uh, there to get any of the latest updates of the sorts of what we're doing or whereabouts. So continue having a very healthy obsession with Kaiju, and we will see you here in a couple of weeks when we do the commentary for 1967's guilty pleasure, Yangari Monster from the Deep. All right, take it easy, folks. (laughs) 